Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending November 5. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, you will hear our interview with Christian White. He's written a new novel. It's called Wild Place. Uh, and it's very close to Daniel's heart because it's kind of based on the Mornington Peninsula, very close to Franger. Frangla! <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Bobby had an audition and it turns out um, her natural love for her partner, Abby, maybe doesn't always come through in the audition process. Mm. Oh, yeah, I suck. Uh, <laughs> Michael Harton chats to us about restaurants opening back up and also awards season, uh, which is upon us. Former breakfaster Jeff Sparrow chats to us about his new book, Crimes Against Nature, Capitalism and Global Heating as well. There's a new film out. It's called Passing. There's a lot of heat and Hayley Inch told us about it. Also, we walked through what occasions are champagne worthy. Triple R. Author and screenwriter Christian White broke the record for fastest-selling Australian novel ever with his Victorian Premier's Literary Award-winning debut, The Nowhere Child, and in 2019 followed it up with best-selling The Wife and the Widow, also translated into multiple languages. Christian's first feature film, Relic, was released in 2020 in Clickbait. The TV series he co-created with Tony Ayres was launched by Netflix in August and went straight to number one in 41 countries. His new thriller, Wild Place, has now been released via Affirm Press. And to tell us about it, the author joins us now. Christian, welcome back to Breakfasters. Thank you so much for having me. I wish I was, um, unfortunately, I'm calling in from my, my house, but I wish I could be there in person again. Well, you were one of the last guests we saw in person. That was about two years ago, almost to the day. Uh, you were mentioning at the time that you, you know, you're an overnight success that took 20 years. And you'd only <laughs> been writing up to that point full time for only one year. But what's the intervening two years been like for you? Uh, it, it, all of a sudden, I've just been. Um, just been yeah writing full time that that entire time it's um been pretty i keep waiting for the rug to get pulled out and for um you know for for just everything to all the offers to stop and everything like that which i'm sure they will eventually um but no it's been it's been crazy so far and and uh and and very very busy and it feels like it feels like yesterday I was there, and also it feels like 100 years ago. Yeah, I was exactly. There. It's been a weird, as everyone else's experience, it's been a very strange few years. Mm. Now, wild place, you've switched peninsulas. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not very creative, you see. And so when I wrote, uh, when I wrote Wife and the Widow, which was on the Bellarine, I was living on the Bellarine Peninsula. And then I moved to the Mornington Peninsula, and now I'm writing about the Mornington Peninsula. <laughs> very little, very little creativity. I, my fourth book is just going to be set in my house. <laughs> uh, it's it is it is fun to pick up on the references. You even get the the bus routes bang on. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was that was really drawing on my um, drawing on my childhood. I was I was always had to get the seven eight one. Every now and then I'd get the seven eight eight, but it. it, it often didn't work out for me so yeah i really drew on my memory for that one and you've got to get those things right because even though you know that it's set in a fictional town it's very much placed you know in in a real place and you get um if i got those bus routes wrong i would get emails about it yes definitely yeah i I once got an email about um 
my first book, The Nowhere Child, because a, a, a lemon tree wouldn't grow in the certain soil at the certain time of year. The <laughs> set. So like, I've got to get the bus route right. You know, da- Daniel's an old Frankston boy, so I feel like he was scouring the book looking looking for those mistakes. <laughs> oh, it'd be nice if the record shop was called Record City, but what are you going to do in Frankston? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, tell what can you tell us about this book? Given that it must be very dependent on spoilers, what are you prepared to say? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm getting very good at, at, at pitching my stuff without actually pitching anything. <laughs> uh, yeah, so so yeah, you'll, you'll be amazed. No, this, well, this book is about a, a teenage girl who goes missing um, from this very ornery little suburb uh, on the Mornington Peninsula. It's called Camp Hill. Uh, and it's it all takes place in 1989, and most of it takes place over that very strange time between Christmas and New Year's. You know, where, where it just feels weird, like we're waiting for something. Mm. I don't know. It's, it's a really mm. weird time. So it's all set over that period, um, and in the late 80s, which was the height of the Satanic Panic, um, which was this wave of uh, mass hysteria that swept. The entire world, America in particular, uh, which will surprise no one, um, but also the UK and over here as well, where um, where all these very reasonable, apparently level-headed parents were suddenly very scared that their kids were getting um, brainwashed by heavy metal records and uh, there were roaming satanic cults and things like that. So it sort of um, it delves into to all of that uh, that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, that's about all I can say about the plot. Yeah. Really. How old were you in '89? Were, were you a student? I I was a, I was a, a baby. I was a, well, not a baby. I was uh, eight years old in 1989. So a lot of my a lot a lot of that the, you know during the writing process, a lot of it was drawn on my childhood, which was actually from the early '90s. That, that's that's my kind of you know when I think back to being a kid, it was I was a '90s kid. Um, so I was, a lot of research was involved. A lot of um, you know making sure that there were certain that the, the cars that the the characters drive were definitely around in 1989, and and so a, a lot of it was um was that. But yeah, I was a little a little little kid. But I kind of feel like the 80s are the new they're the new 50s. You know, we used to look at the 50s with this warm sense of nostalgia, and I think now we do that um, with the 80s. I, I love films, you know, Stranger Things, things like that are set in the 80s. There's this real warmth to it, but it was a um. It was a weird time as well because there's this there's this kind of tension, right? There was on one hand we could, you were free you, as a kid, you were free to to run out and, and as long as you're home before it gets dark, go go do what you want. But at the same time, there was suddenly a stranger danger and the neighbourhood watch, and so it was this really interesting kind of tense uh, time. I was reading that you you'd kind of been interested in this satanic panic period for some time and had been wanting to work it into something that you did what what was it about this book or what is it right now that's kind of allowed you to, to create this story yeah i've wanted to write about satanic panic for for years and years actually um i was really interested in it but it never seemed it always just seemed kind of silly and far-fetched and i could never sort of work i, I never had an angle and then um and then really the pandemic uh, you know, hit, and then suddenly they were all. Everyone's got a story where you know suddenly a, a relative of yours is posting things on Facebook, uh, you know, about Hillary Clinton drinking blood and and Bill Gates tracking us through the vaccine, and and all of a sudden I was, I sort of it occurred to me that we're just living through a natural evolution of satanic panic. This is just this is this is satanic panic with the advent of social media, you know, so it just spreads like crazy and. 
you know, I started to notice because I think I, I think like a lot of people, first I got angry and, and, and got into online arguments against conspiracy theorists. But then very soon I started to try to empathize with them and understand them because they were people from my life, from my personal life. They weren't just strangers and crackpots. And I think what I started to realize is that, you know, when people are really uh, scared and outraged uh, and and concerned for their kids and everything, suddenly your your standards of evidence drop and you're willing to believe things. I think you want to believe things because you want someone to blame. And I was sort of going through all of this. And at the same time, I had moved back to the Mornington Peninsula. So I, there was all these little nostalgia bombs going off in my head everywhere I walked. And it, it all came together that I could suddenly, I could write about what we've experienced with COVID and QAnon in this fun 1980s um, setting and finally explore Satanic Panic. Mm. We get references to, you know, Polaroid cameras and Viennetta dessert and stuff. <laughs> is, there, is there anything also about that period and its lack of technology that makes your job easier? Yeah, any time as a writer, as a thriller writer in particular, anytime you can get a mobile phone away from a character, it's just bliss because you don't, uh, you know, you don't have to worry about them. Any problem, basically, you can just text someone or call and it and it's solved. So I really loved just writing in a world, you know, pre-technology, pre-internet, pre-mobile phone. You can just, everything feels a bit more um, dangerous and wild, I think. Mm. It's a, And it's a cheat, really. What do you consume for fun versus for professional development? I mean, do you watch crime dramas? Do you watch uh, real crime docos? And that's, you know, for your own edification and professionally? Or what are your media habits? Sort of. So a big part of, I've had to kind of reshuffle all of this. So this this cool thing happens when you're an author and you suddenly get sent all these books to endorse ahead of time, which is really, really cool. And it's a bit of a dream, but you find suddenly the lines between work and pleasure start to blur. So I've had to really force myself to... Um, to kind of change change up my habits a bit. So now usually I will read, I'll read a, a, a thriller someone sent me and then a book of my own choosing. And, you know, I, I alternate between them. And you, I read a lot of thrillers as well, but I also love, um, you know, Haruki Murakami is one of my favourite authors, which is, is nothing like my style of writing. Uh, I watch, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I, I watch a lot of true crime-ish stuff, but I'm also just a big um just a big TV fan, you know. Uh, I'm obsessed with Succession at the minute. I love Survivor. The new, the new American Survivor is out. That's my the most exciting moment of my week. Each week is Friday night, sitting down with with Jeff Probst. So I, I kind of have a, a very wide um, a wide net. But I also do things like, you know, I'm re rewatching Frasier. I rewatched The Office twenty times and Seinfeld because mm. there's something about um, switching off at the end of the day. There's something about those really cozy comfort shows that um yeah could, could not be further from my work and what about uh, the writing of the novel uh, how much of the plotting is intuitive i know you probably don't want to give the game away but it, how much is a mathematical and engineered versus artistic writing your own genius well yeah basically my style uh the last book was like this and this one in particular i i will come up with an amazing plot then I'll put it down on paper and realize it's not an amazing plot. It's just, it's a bit clumsy. And then I'll go to my wife who has all the answers for me. And then I just go back and make it look like I intended that all the time. <laughs> and, 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 no, it's, and, and I'm sort of joking, but sort of true. You know, I will plot, um, 
I will plot the, the you know plot it from out, out from beginning to end, but then generally what happens about halfway through, it goes off the rails a bit. But in, but but for sort of good reasons, you know. I, I'm really um, if uh, I really believe that character needs to trump plot. So even though even if you have an amazing plot, I always follow the character. And and often when you're plotting, you you don't know the characters yet. But then you'll get into the meat of it, and you'll get halfway, and you'll realize, oh, that that character wouldn't do what I want them to do. And rather than kind of moving, kind of kind of shoehorning and forcing them to do that thing, I just follow the character and think. What would they do in that situation? Um, and and yeah, that's basically what happens. So I'm a bit of a a bit of a, a bit of both, really. I'm interested in how you write about teenagers because I think that sometimes when you read about young adults, when you read a writing from an adult about a young adult or a teenager, it can be really clumsy or caricaturish. And there's a <laughs> yeah. lot of, there's a lot of teenagers here doing really teenagery things in this in this book. So did, like, what was you what were you thinking when you started writing those characters? Did you have just go back to your own time or you? Not hanging out with teenagers, but I don't know. I'm just kind of interested in that. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think it was easier because I know exactly what you mean. You'll be reading a book by, you know, a, a middle-aged guy and, it'll, <laughs> and there'll be a teenage character and they'll say, oh, gnarly dad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I hate that. So, But I think it was easier for me. I had a couple of things going. So I had, I wasn't writing about modern teenagers, yeah. um, which I, then then my ignorance would definitely shine through. I'm 40 years old now and I would be, you know, I'd be writing about um, TikTok and I'd, and I'd get it all wrong. It would be really cringeworthy. But something about writing in that era, I, I could just draw from my own life. And with this book, I've done that more than I've ever done before. You know, there's three sort of, three of the male the, the male-ish characters um are there's uh you know tom the adult sean a teenager and kieran a slightly younger teenager and really for all three of them i just drew on where i was at certain parts of my life so i really just um yeah there's just you know one of the characters kieran he's obsessed with the army and war and i was as a kid i don't know why it's so weird but i used to dress up in fatigues and um I, you know it's really really strange but i just i just you know wrote what i remembered um and yeah and, and i'm glad to hear because i don't know if it was cringeworthy or not i'm glad to hear it didn't um you know make you seize up and <laughs> well the book is Wild Place. It's out via Firm Press. I wanted to ask finally uh, just about Neighbourhood Watch and there's an element of vigilantism as well. Do, are you a part of Neighbourhood Watch? How involved in the community are you, uh, you know, this suburban life that you depict in the book? Well, I, I'm, I try to be a really, really private person, but I've moved to a small community and now you just can't escape it. So I'm definitely... I'm definitely not part of a neighborhood watch and, and I hope to God no one actually starts one in my because I'll be pressured. I'll have you have to go. Um, but no, now I'm I'm for the first time in a long time I feel like I'm sort of putting down roots in a in a community. I have I've usually I've moved around a lot in my life and, and this is the first time we've we've always my wife and I've always rented and this is the first time we've bought a place and I feel like I want to be here for a while and it's sort of impossible not to get up in your neighbor's business. And it's really weird because <laughs> Because if you, you talk to someone and they'll reveal something about you. You know, you'll be walking and you'll do a stop and chat with someone in the street and they'll reveal something to you that they you've never told them. So you know that's, that, that they've got this information from about you from somewhere else and that's just the, the nature of it. So, yeah, I've, I'm, I'm in it now. <laughs> You're in it. Uh, yeah. Christian White, author of Wild Place, great to talk and uh, let's do it again soon, hopefully. 
Thank you so much for having me, guys. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. So one of the fun things that I like to do is uh, dabble in a bit of acting um, outside yes. of radio. Uh, and when I say dabble, I mean I'm an extra. Yeah. That's pretty much all it is. Sometimes a featured extra. Occasionally I'll get a couple of lines. But um, I've been doing a lot of auditioning over the last however long. Um, and a lot of the time it's just been self-test. So you just have to video yourself and then and send it in. Um and got a call back. Uh, so last week had to thank yes. you, Jace. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, didn't go so well, though. Uh, oh, minor detail. <laughs> but, I, um, but the callback was actually going into the studio and it was last week. So they're like, you know, you get to come in. It was like, oh, wow, doing face-to-face. You actually get to sit down with the director and, and they can direct you and, and tell you what to do and whatnot. But we went in and, God, because it was the first face-to-face audition, everyone in the room was just so... Like when we first walked in, the lady that was working at the casting agency, she was so excited, like, good morning. Oh, it's so good to see everyone. Other people that were auditioning are sitting there and everyone's just like, hi. And everyone was just so overly excited in the room. Um, We sat down. It it was a two. So I was actually there auditioning with my partner, Abby. Uh, And we sat down and people are coming in in couples and, and just waiting. And, yeah, it was just the same thing going over and over again, everyone getting overly excited. Anyway, we went in uh, there. Oh, get this though. Like we we auditioned six months ago and when you audition, they're like, okay, we need this by 11 a.m. tomorrow. It's like, oh, okay, all right. So we put it through and then they get back to us six months later. They're like, so you've made uh, the... Um, wow. you've, you've got through. And we're like, sorry, what audition was this? Mm. And they're like, oh, it was six months ago. It's like, oh, the one that you gave me less than 24 hours to do. Um, they're like, yeah, so can you come in tomorrow at 10 a.m.? It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so we came in. I had the audition. And now, I mean, I admit, I am not great at acting. My partner, Abby, she studied acting and she's been in a few short films and she, she's wonderful. Uh, we went in there and the director's there and the casting agent and they, um, uh, they've given Abby the role of the angry uh, road rage kind of person and I was the person in the passenger seat. <laughs> and she had all the, I, I guess, emotion and, and talking and, and mine was just a facial expression. I had to show emotion and a moment and I'm like, oh, my God, give me the angry. Like, give me the verbal. <laughs> swap. I, Let's swap. I can do that. I can't do. And they were zooming in and the director just kept going like, Bobby, I need you to just sit there and then imagine that you're going on a holiday and then that moment, that's what we want. And I'm like, okay. And, I mean, I couldn't get it. We were, I think the audition was supposed to go for 10 minutes. It went for 20 and he just it just kept, stop, okay, Bobby, we need you to do that again. And it was just the most horrible. And I'm just like, can, can we swap roles? Is Abby upset that you were blowing her audition? <laughs> she is so polite about it. But every time we go out, like if we get um, auditions for same-sex couples, uh, I'm just like, I am so sorry. I am so sorry that you were dragged in with me. Like, they think that they're going to get a natural chemistry, but I'm horrible. That's great. I'm would would so they bad. consider slicing and dicing? And well, you I get... think they need to. I, and I said to her, I go, if you want to go in as a single, I, I'm not going to be offended. Just just do that. Because in the auditions, there were single people that came in and they were just paired up with people. And I'm like, oh, babe, you need to go and pair up with one of these people. Because I was just so bad. And then, like, we left and I'm just like, I am so sorry. She's like, no, no, like, it was fine. I was like, it was you were great. I was horrible. I just, you know, I, I um, was on Wentworth for a couple of seasons on Foxtel and my favourite TV show with the most amazing actors in the country. Really? And yep. we had this one scene and it was, I was in it with all of the main actors and 
it was a big scene. And I was in the middle of it and one of the main characters was, you know, addressing everyone and they've got it and they're like, cut. And like the third assistant director comes out like, Bobby, so we need you to give give us a little bit more. I was like, oh, okay, no worries. And she's trying to guide me and I'm like, okay. (laughs) We do it again and then the director's like, oh, cut talk to Bobby so they've come out and they've come and get me got me again and I'm just like what emotion am I happy am I sad they're like you're confused because of this and I'm just it was so bad that I think they cut it four times I felt horrible and the main actors are looking at me going that's okay Bobby you can do it and I'm like oh my god yeah, that sounds Get tense. me out of this scene. I go, please oh. just put someone else in. I can, but the, um, oh, I'm just trying to think of her uh, name, Jenko, Kate Jenkinson, amazing actress, uh, actor. And she, yeah, she's just going, you can do it, Bobby, just relax. I'm like, how can I relax when I'm standing <laughs> yeah. here with all these amazing actors and I can't even pull a facial expression? Yeah. I just kept stuffing And what, what about the direction for the holiday? How did that go? What, where oh. did you imagine your holiday was? Did you take it all on board? Was well, that's it- the thing. And, I, you know, I don't do it well. <laughs> It's like you have to think back. Like, don't just do the emotion. Get the backstory. You know, imagine where you're going. I didn't do any of that. I, didn't, I, I was horrible. I was just trying to pull a face. And they're like, no, you look constipated. Okay, you're going on a holiday. Give me something better. I, I, I just, I'm just really, really The thing about auditions as well, if you don't know your um, dimensions... Don't you have to put down your dimensions sometimes, like how tall you are? And oh, really? Yeah, and I've they put a like a tape measure in the corner of the room. Can't they edit? Oh, they <laughs> edit like the look, size. Yeah, make it look real tall or something. Like I think that's mainly for the wardrobe, oh, <laughs> so right. that they can because you I do you have to do height and everything and, they and edit. Quit. What do you think they're doing? <laughs> oh, Come on. I thought they just edit everything. <laughs> oh, we'll just edit that in. Unless you're Tom Cruise, yeah, I think they edit his height. Yeah, and like it'd be your waist. So you're sitting there with a tape measure around your waist. Oh no, we give all the measurements beforehand. Yeah, if you're a pro like you, <laughs> if you're an idiot. You. It's so, is there a, every every part of the audition phase is totally humiliating. Yeah, you know, I've been to some that have been okay, but more recently, I've got to be honest with you, I, I'm I'm realizing more and more. How bad I am. Yeah. I think I think I just need to give it up. And then how did is there a moment where they've given up on you? Like do you hear oh. a, Okay. Oh. <laughs> yeah, they kinda do this because they try to be positive and then they're just like, All right, yeah, no, that was good. That was good. All right, well thanks for your time. Like Real, oh, thank you so much. And yeah. then I just get the hell out and of it. And then there. what do you and Abby do? Well, Abby's trying to say positive and I'm just walking out of the audition like an idiot with my head down, going, Oh my god, I've stuffed it up for you again. Again. Anyway, we were heading away for a couple of days, so that kind of cheered her up a little bit. Yeah. Other than that. Uh, And do you think that, has she got a call back? (laughs) No, she hasn't. Unfortunately, we go in as a couple and I'm just like, I'm bringing you down. I think we just have to tell our agent, just separate us. We need to see other actors. We need to see (laughs) (laughs) Melbourne's own Triple R. I'm hungry. I want something to eat. Something with a crunch and very sweet. Australian gourmet traveller Michael Harden is in the house for his regular food interlude. Morning, Michael. Good morning. How are you? Yeah, we're good. What are you getting up to? Well, you know, as as I suppose a few of us are, we're all getting back out into restaurants again. Have you have you been out partaking as yet? No, I I 
walk the streets and peer in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel I feel like it is a little bit like that at the moment. We're all like these sort of little scared bush creatures <laughs> peering through the bushes, you know, kind of in trepidation. And it's like, even when I think when you go into restaurants, I've found that it's sort of like, and you know, myself and anecdotally, it's sort of like it's always it's quite an odd and sort of oddly emotional experience. Like I went out the first time that I went out, it was at, uh, I went to Gerald's Bar oh, on mm. the first Friday that we were released. And, you know, I was with some friends there. There were tears, wow, there yeah. was hugging, there was laughter. It was like, it was quite, it was quite interesting the way that uh, people were reacting. And then it's just that that way of trying to sort of be in restaurants again and, and be around people and be social. Mm. And um, I had a, a thing on Saturday, I went to the, the incredible great Lincoln the pub in Carlton um, for a, like a very belated birthday celebration for myself and you know people were coming in and and they were like you know hugging me and like going you know happy birthday and I was like yeah happy birthday and then realizing that that probably wasn't the right reaction <laughs> that's a happy man <laughs> yeah so, but uh, yeah but it sort of seems to be starting to get there still seems to be this sort of little bit of air of trepidation added with a bit of excitement mm. about it and uh, you know restaurant to sort of anecdotally people are behaving pretty well I think you know there's sort of this and a lot of them have been saying that there's a fair bit of like you know excitement about you know and novelty I guess about showing their you know vax certificate when they're asked and that sort of stuff so it sort of seems to be pretty good there the main concern with restaurants at the moment seems to be, of course, the staff shortage, which is chronic. Yeah. And um, I've spoken to a couple of different restaurateurs who um, have, uh, you know, been able to haven't been able to open shifts because you know they're closing a couple of days a week, or they're not doing lunch and just dinner and that sort of stuff because they just don't have enough staff to uh, to go around. Which is, uh, you know, trying to trying to thread your way out of a pandemic is bad enough without doing that as well but um you know i think they're trying to do it they're trying to they're trying to get there yeah. in a way it's sort of like a gentle gently going into it is is probably a better way to do it because we're all a bit out of condition is this going to be a problem you know into the next year uh yeah. is it is it a equating to a, a rise in prices on menus as well what's the effect yeah on? i think i think it's going to be it's going to be an ongoing problem like particularly until the borders open, the international border opens, you know, because that's that's where we've lost a lot of staff. And um, so I think that's that's the problem. And I think, yeah, as you say, restaurant prices are going to rise. Um, people are sort of charging kind of probably what they need to be charging. I think it's a thing that we're kind of starting to realise, get it into perspective a little bit mm. that, you know, res restaurants are sort of a privilege and, yeah. are, you know, not a, you can't you can't do it all the time, um, you know, and they do cost a lot of money to run. So um, I think that's kind of been one of the things about, and, you know, I think that's been one of the things about missing restaurants is kind of realising that they're of their social value mm -hmm. as well as, you know, just, just giving you a good feed. They're actually sort of great places to gather and sort of feel like you're part of something. Yeah. So, and, it, and what about the state of re reviewing in this climate? Wouldn't you feel, you'd feel a bit rough giving a bad review, wouldn't you? It's really, yeah, it's really interesting because we're right in the middle of um, sort of awards season for restaurants at the moment. So um, Gourmet Traveller, the um, magazine that I write for, um, has just last week, we released our sort of award winners and um, and the Good Food Guide, which is the, the uh, nine papers um, guides. That's coming out 
um, this month. And it's interesting, both without sort of any sort of consultation, but it's a, it's a bit of a worldwide reviewing thing. People have stopped. Um, scoring seems to be out at the moment. There's sort of like there's going to be no scores. We didn't we didn't for Gourmet Traveller. There was no scores on that. We didn't even put rankings on ours this time. It was kind of like mm. we decided that we were looking at um, restaurants that were sort of um, a reflection of where we're eating now rather than sort of ranking in a sort of like an old-fashioned sort of Michelin star thing where you have to check off different boxes in order to achieve a certain score. Mm. It's um, it's kind of opened up a little bit more on that where we're sort of looking at restaurants from all different sorts of, um, you know, walks of life and different cuisines, different attitudes towards service and everything and sort of putting them together in good places to eat rather than just having all the sort of the places with the linen and the, and the million waiters and the huge wine lists and everything as being the sort of um, standard of what a good restaurant is. I think that's kind of opened up a little bit there. Yeah, got to so, pay attention to the pros more now. Yeah, yes, exactly, exactly. Because it's like, and it, it's, it, and I think it really is, you know, everybody's sort of like working in food, like, you know, from my end where you're writing about food and you sort of, as you say, you can't, after what, what restaurants have gone through and you see there's so many empty shop fronts and closed restaurants and stuff, it, you, don't, you don't feel like you could go in and start sledging people mm. too hard. You know, even though it's tempting at times, yeah. But um, you know, it's kind of like they, they just we just kind of want to get everything open and uh, you know see see how that goes. So. Do you ever feel implicated in maybe ruining a place with uh, causing overpopularity? I know it's a good yeah. problem to it's, have. It's sort of interesting that because it was um, I was just talking to um, the like our in gourmet travellers restaurant of the year was Tedesco Osteria, which yes. is um, down on the Mornington Peninsula. This is the one I'm which, thinking of. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it is a it's amazing restaurant. Um, but it's they are now. They said I was talking to Brigitte Hafner, who's the chef there and owner, and uh, she said that when that award came through, they were getting they immediately started getting six to seven hundred email requests for bookings a day, wow. and they're sort of quite a limited restaurant as it is they sort of that's part of the their the thing and i think part of the reason that they won as well because their attitude towards opening and their staff mm. is that they only doing four to five services a week and they only do one service a day so it's sort of like it's a it's a more relaxed sort of longer thing where you can sort of linger and it's not just sort of it's just not about the food on the plate it's about the experience of eating in the restaurant and slowing down also but also looking after the health physical and mental of the staff by not kind of you know, making them work some enormous amount of hours per week. So it's that sort of thing. But, you know, the, the other side of that is that you have got an enormous waiting list and it's really hard to get into. Like, you know, they're, they're booked out now through sort of April next year. Yeah. And, um, you know, and it's it's similar to the... We, we gave an award for Best New Talent to um, Jung Eun Che, who has the has Che restaurant in in that was in Brunswick in the apartment building? That's the little I think I've talked about it before. It's a little six seater Korean um, restaurant where she does the most incredible food. Um, but you know, she, and she's now moved out to Cockatoo and has got a has got a house out there. So she's got more room to do the sort of traditional Korean fermenting, which is at the basis of the food that she does. But also, also, it's a six-seat restaurant and it's been getting a lot of press. So there is now an 8,000-person um, 8, wait to get a table in a 
place that she's and she's not going to do any more than six seats because mm. she says that that kind of compromises what she wants to do and it which is sort of like a very personal experience and sort of talking to people about what they like and don't like and that sort of stuff so it's kind of it's it's interesting that that you know the success can also mean like you know make this barrier mm. to people actually enjoying the restaurant when you mention emails is it first come first serve or can you actually write a good cover letter and you know persuade yourself up the list yeah, I think anything. It's so sort of unfortunately, I think you know you can't put a wad of cash in the um, you know in the email. But, uh, yeah. I think that you could probably you know you could you could try. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like everybody thinks that they're they're fairly democratic, but you know, there's always where there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> That's good. Are there any other awards we should know about? Um, there was there was uh, one of the other ones that we did. The best new restaurant was um, was um, Gimlet, which is uh, Andrew. Um, McConnell's latest restaurant, which was, you know, I thought that was a, it was a really good win. It's like it's quite a, it's quite a great, it's a, it's a great restaurant. If you haven't been there, that's another one that's kind of worth having a look at. And and the nice thing about it is that sort of, um, again, it's kind of less restauranty than perhaps a couple of some of his others. So it's it's very it's it's as easy to sort of just go in and have a cocktail at the bar with a snack. Mm as it is to sort of sit in the dining room and have the full shebang. So it's like, you know, kind of it feels like that this is where restaurants are heading, that there's there's more of a... Um, it's been going that way for a while, but I think that the, even more so now, it's like this kind of flexibility where you're not sort of locked in to a particular amount of money or a particular amount of time in order to use these places, and the and the menus reflect that in the kind of like they've just been broken down out of out of the sort of like that old fashioned sort of um, Western kind of entree main dessert mm. kind of thing, and are sort of embracing the ways that other other people eat as well, which I think um, is also happening with with some of you know these smaller restaurants as well. It's sort of like this kind of Tokyo model. Um, where uh, you, you've got a restaurant that sort of seats 10 people and really just does one thing. So, you know, it's that that kind of stuff is what, happening as what, well. What about this new French joint on Greville Street? Entrecote, yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's very kind of OTT. And, uh, you know, it's kind of, it, but it, it'll be great. He, Jason, um, does a, a fantastic job with that because it's, moved, it's just moved from um, Domain Road in South Yarra and it is a very south of the river kind of place you know which it was just you know with all that entails mm -hmm. and um it's uh, it's yeah it's really good like french bistros are sort of another thing it's sort of like i think that is um restaurateurs sort of retreating to the safety of the well-known as mm. well you know where you kind of think okay i can go along there and i can get a french onion soup and i can get a, a steak fruit and i can get you know kind of a creme brulee those sort of things like familiar um comfortable cosseting you know kind of all about not so much sort of <clears throat> the food becomes less the hero than just another part of the equation so it's sort of like the the atmosphere the service the wine list you know the kind of the the um just having the camaraderie of being in a restaurant with other people is kind of just as important as what's landing on your table into in in the form of food yeah uh, where can we read more of your work and uh, this award season uh, the latest Gourmet Traveller is out, so it's kind of like we've got it. There's a, there's a good roundup that we list sort of 80 restaurants around Australia 
um, there because we, you know, it's a national magazine, and um, you know, I write about the Victorian ones and the Tasmanian ones. But we've got um, restaurants from every state, so it's a good sort of one. So when you start, you know, getting back on planes and going into state, it's a good one to have in your back pocket to be able to just sort of have a quick guide to what's going on. And then, of course, the Good Food Guide is coming out. I've contributed some stuff to that as well so that's coming out in november which will be interesting beautiful so. uh good on you michael harden happy birthday oh thank you very much it's like yeah happy birthday to you that's right triple r Jeff Sparrow is a writer, editor, broadcaster, Walkley Award-winning journalist and lecturer at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. A columnist for The Guardian Australia, Jeff's previous books include Fascists Among Us and Trigger Warnings, and his latest is Crimes Against Nature, Capitalism and Global Heating. And to tell us about it, the grapevine regular and former breakfaster joins us now. Jeff, welcome back to the show. Yes, once and always a breakfast, the most important thing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, How are you all going? Yeah, we swell. And it, I tell you what, for a book about climate change, it's actually quite optimistic. Oh, I'm glad you said that because that was kind of the impetus for doing it. I mean, I think climate change can be such a sort of overwhelming subject. And one of the reasons I think it can be so depressing is we're just told over and over again that we're to blame for it, you know, that we're greedy, that we're lazy, that we just you know, want to use up all of um, the Earth's resources. And sometimes some of, some of the discourse around it makes it sound like people are just a kind of plague on the Earth and the sooner we were all got rid of, the the better. And so I wanted to kind of write a book that said that actually people aren't the problem, that they can actually be the solution, which is sort of the impetus behind this book. Mm. How hard did you have to work and search to find that positivity or to find the kind of silver lining among it all? That's super interesting, Sarah, because as soon as you actually look at the history, it just leaps out at you. So, you know, like car culture is often given as an example of how, you know, how greedy people are. We all want these big cars and they use up all the carbon, you know, they pollute everything. But actually, you look at the history of car culture and right from the start, actually, people in the very early days of cars were saying these things are incredibly destructive and we don't want them. And the reason we ended up with the car culture we did is because the um, car manufacturers literally forced it upon people. So, you know, um, smashing up protests and um, creating an infrastructure that meant that you really needed a car in order to live. The examples just, just keep sort of tumbling out as soon as you start to look. I mean, you know, I, I discovered that when plastic was first introduced, not only did the manufacturers have to run an enormous PR campaign to get people to take up plastic, but people's first response to plastic bags was to recycle them because they thought that's just what you did. Mm. And so the plastics industry had to run a huge publicity campaign to stop people recycling plastic bags because they wanted people to keep buying more and more of them. And that just comes out over and over again. Actually, most people have really decent impulses and responses and i think that's actually a really good sign the uh, book consists of what 13 chapters and it's bursting with tidbits just one of them on the car culture is the the origins of jaywalking kind of is symbolic of how we're i don't know we've been manipulated into thinking that the the car culture is normal and you know pedestrians are the ones that are you know in the way yeah, that, 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 that's right. It, on um, Prior to cars, roads were for pedestrians and um, p- kids would just play on the roads and that was taken for granted. So when the first cars came, 
um, people just assumed that it was the car's responsibility to get out of the way of people and not the other way around. And so um, in response to that and in response to the horrific death toll caused by cars and the massive backlash against that, the, the manufacturers ran this campaign to convince people that it was pedestrians' fault. And so the term jaywalker was specifically invented to demonise um to demonise pedestrians. And there's another parallel one as well. The term litterbug was was also invented by um, by the manufacturers of, of cans and packaging to make individuals responsible for, um, for, 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 for pollution. So it was specifically created as part of a campaign to stop legislation that would limit the, the manufacturers from polluting and to put the responsibility onto individuals. It's not our fault, it's your fault, you're a litterbug. Mm. With all the knowledge that we have now, has car manufacturing actually slowed down in recent years or is it still on the rise? Yeah, that's a super interesting question um, as well. I mean, one of one of the really interesting things about the history of the of the car is that in the very early phases of the car industry, actually, um, most experts thought electric cars were um, were more efficient and preferable to uh, hydrocarbon engines. And in fact, in the eighteen nineties, there was a viable electric car industry all across America before the um, auto manufacturers um, smashed it. Now, I think what what we're heading for is a situation where electric cars are being used as a way to kind of revive some of the more destructive elements of car culture. So rather than pushing towards things like public transport, that, you know, t- technologies that we've had for a long time and people know are much better for the environment. The idea is to insist that everyone has to buy their own private, um, the private car. And I think it's a really good example of the way that um, even the new technologies, if if they're just seized hold of, seized hold of by corporations, can actually be quite destructive. So the solution to climate change isn't simply a technological one. It's got a great deal with to do with how we use that technology. Can you speak to this false binary that you outline, uh, and I don't want to mischaracterise it, but between you know human progress versus the wild, and it's one or the other, whereas actually you kind of state the interplay between <laughs> humans, nature on nature. Yeah. So, like, so, so sometimes the way we think about environmentalism is that there is this thing called the wilderness, which is out there and is opposed to human beings. And the problem is we have to protect the wilderness from humans. And I think that's really destructive. As, apart from anything else, it's just impossible, right? If you, if, you phrase the, if you phrase the issue like that, the wilderness is just always and everywhere disappearing. But what's super interesting is, of course, there's almost nowhere on the planet that hasn't been shaped by humans in some way, shape or form. So you look at parts of the world, you know, from the Amazon to various deserts where you think of as entirely untouched by human beings and you discover these places have actually been shaped by humans um, over thousands and thousands of, uh, of years. And so I think the really crucial issue isn't about not touching nature, but the kind of relationship that we have with nature. And I think in, in the Australian context, that's super important as well, because you know we, we're living on a continent where for 50,000 years, indigenous people reshaped the Australian environment, did so through burning and, uh, and other mechanisms, but they did so in a way that actually improved the ecological 
outcomes on, on on that country and it's it's a it's a it's a really important example because it shows it's quite possible for for human beings to live in ways that don't destroy the planet but in fact improve it and if we if we think about it like that it pushes us in a much more optimistic way because it's we're not just fighting this rearguard um, action to prevent um, the wilderness from disappearing we can actually improve the world not just make it less bad mm. and you know i think that's really really important and when you look at cop 26 do you say this is not the uh, avenue for change do you are you hopeful are you despairing what's your view of the the current yes situation? i think i think it's quite likely that after cop 26 we're going to see a wave of despair because this conference was sold as you know the last best hope and it looks increasingly likely that not very much is going to um, come out of it, which I think makes the kind of argument I'm trying to put in this book more important than the, the, than than ever. That the the problem is not human beings as a whole. The problem is not that we are incorrigibly destructive. The problem is the particular political and economic systems that um, confront us, and you know. It's clearer than 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 ever before that um, the change has got to come from the bottom up because, you know, business as usual is is is, is killing us and is killing the planet. When I read this book, though, I I just got this sense that I mean, there's positivity in it, but also it's like at every turn, corporations are doing everything they can to to not improve the situation, to make our situation worse. Or- or pull wool over our eyes. Like, how do you how do you deal with that? How do we respond to that? Well, I think the first way to respond to it is recognizing that it's the case, and you know, not just falling behind the kind of bullshit that will come out of something like COP twenty six, where you know the biggest polluters. Well, you know, people don't realize COP twenty six had a whole series of corporate sponsors, which just seems to be utterly bizarre. But, you know, so every corporation is falling over itself to suddenly proclaim itself to be, you know, greener than than thou. And, you know, again and again, we look at things like corporations pushing recycling um, projects that, that they know are not going to work or that are intended simply to make us consume more stuff thinking that, you know, that we're somehow doing something to, 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 um, to save the planet. So I guess... What we need to do has is have less confidence in corporations and more confidence in ourselves and you know the other the ordinary people around us and our potential to make the world. And that's why I think starting from a position that ordinary people are actually kind of amazing. You know the the way people have resisted the things that have been forced on us for you know um, in in terms of various environmentally destructive measures, the way people have naturally, almost instinctively reacted against this is actually kind of inspiring. And, you know, that's the basis on which that we might potentially get out of this crisis. And what about as a writer finding your way into this sort of subject matter? I noticed you might use, you know, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or Dennis Leary's Arsehole or, (laughs) uh, you know, Brave New World. What about using angles that interest you to, to, you know, to get yourself into this sort of dense matter? Yeah, no, no, totally. Look, look for, you know, a, a long time, I think, like a lot of other people, I always found climate change to be intensely boring. You know, like he was one of he was one of those subjects where you thought, I should know something about this, but Christ, it's all about rainfall and, you know, the sort of stuff that you studied in geography at school. And I, you know, but actually, when you, <laughs> actually, when you delve into it, it's 
utterly, utterly fascinating because what climate change goes to is this fundamental issue about how human beings relate to the natural world. And like I said, if you, you can go back, you know, thousands of years and you can find humans shaping the planet in, um, you know, in various ways, you know, I mean, I tell, I tell a story in the book about the, the ice under Greenland, which has been, you know, just scientists have drilled down into ice flows that are thousands of years old and found the records of how um, the, the ancient Romans were, were mining lead. And that's all trapped under the ice. So human beings have been interacting with nature for a long, long time in all sorts of fascinating kind of ways. So as a writer, what I try to do in the book is tell some of the stories that people perhaps have not heard as a way of kind of, you know, getting people interested in the subject. And what about writing as a lecturer at the Centre for Advancing Journalism? Are you worried your students will read it and critique you? <sighs> it had not occurred to me before, Daniel, but... <laughs> <laughs> Well, it really is a rollicking polemic and such a good introduction to the world's most pressing subject. It's called Crimes Against Nature, Capitalism and Global Heating. Your choice of the term global heating? Uh, Oh, you know, just mix it up a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) It works. Uh, Jeff, so great to talk. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Triple R. Thursday, which means it's our fortnightly check-in with film and TV expert Hayley each morning. Hayley. Oh, sorry, Hayley, I can't hear you. That's my fault. Are you there? <laughs> I am here. I'm Hello. so sorry. I don't, know, I don't know what I just did. I got rid of you for no reason. <laughs> really great. Except for me. He just needs more sips of coffee. <laughs> what's, what's, it's all good. It's all good. What's happening? Well, um, cinemas. A back, mm. which is oh. a very exciting thing. Does that um, mean we can start calling this uh, film reviews instead of screen reviews again? Oh, no, I think we should call it screen reviews because, you know, me personally, I'll definitely still be talking about things on streaming Fair and enough. things like that. And this is actually a film where where I was lucky enough to see it in a cinema in, in the past few days, but it appears I might have been the only person to see it in a cinema <laughs> because it has now disappeared from screens, but it is coming to Netflix on November 10. So you haven't missed out on it. Just wait for Netflix. And I would wait for it because this is probably one of the most impressive films that I've managed to see this year. It is a film called Passing. Okay. Now, we know nothing about it, obviously, <laughs> oh, because it was. It appeared for five seconds. Like it's it gone all. and it's coming back. It introduces to Passing. So this is actually the directorial debut of Rebecca Hall, who I think most people would know as an extremely accomplished actor. Um, And she's been hoping to make this film for about the past decade. And it's taken her quite a while to, you know, get the financing, get the support behind her in order to make it. And I think once you hear the plot of the film, you may realise why. Um... So it's based on a novel by Nella Larson and it's set in 1920s New York City and it follows two women, uh, played by Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nager, who in different ways are managing to pass. And what passing is, it's when a non-white person either takes advantage of their physical appearance or simply 
melts into the assumptions of the people around them in order to pass for white. And it was actually a personal thing for Rebecca Hall in order to adapt this story because her own family actually had a history with passing. Uh, Her grandfather was a mixed-race African-American man who passed for white throughout his life. And it was kind of this unspoken story within her family that she kind of wanted to to explore and untangle. And so, yeah, this is obviously a very personal story for her. And it's quite incredible when you watch this film just going, oh, this woman should have been directing for a very long time now. And it's actually like a disgrace that she had to wait a decade to get this up because this is an extraordinarily impressive film led by two really, really, really fantastic performances. All right. Black and white alert. Oh, black and white alert. It's also in a funny aspect ratio, which (laughs) people tend to like or not like. It's in 4.3, so it's in that kind of like box format, uh, mimicking actual films from the 1920s. And then the cinematography is in black and white, which kind of just... uh, goes towards more easily showing how these two women move between the black and white worlds. And the cinematographer, Edouard Grau, is doing absolutely spectacular work. Mm. What is it about the 20s in New York that makes the story pop? Oh, everything. <laughs> it's it's obviously like this really, it, it's a very melting pot society, but we, we do see as well that it's also a racially stratified society. That The film starts with uh, Tessa Thompson's character, Irene, who is a well-to-do woman who is, she's shopping. So she's going between shops. She winds up going into a hotel in order to sit in a restaurant and, and kind of relax on a very hot day. But she kind of has this nervousness to her and it's because she passes enough that she can kind of, yeah, she can go any places that she kind of wants to within New York and doesn't attract any sort of untoward attention. But she's filled with that tension of knowing that, you know, if she bumps into the wrong person or or something like that, her cover's blown. And she very much knows that, you know, she then goes back home to Harlem to her family who are all dark-skinned and cannot pass in any way whatsoever. So it's this kind of, yeah, very fraught experience of her crossing this this unspoken line and it's when she's in this restaurant that she encounters Claire who's played by Ruth Nager and Claire is an old school friend of Irene's they haven't seen each other for about a decade and Irene is shocked because Claire looks completely different she kind of looks like you know a a little blonde flapper who's descended from the silver screen and Irene realizes very quickly that not only is Claire passing She's passing at a point where everyone in her life assumes that she is white. She has a white husband. She has a child who is considered white. And she's in this situation where, you know, Irene clearly sees it as, oh, she has this freedom, but she's also betrayed her black life and her black family. And it's, it's this very fraught thing for Irene to be confronted with and 
Claire, who played by Nega, has this kind of just free insouciance for her. Um, and, you know, obviously we, we, the audience, you know, Irene is kind of our our eyes and ears. We see what she sees, you know, we, we pass the world through her eyes. And it's clear that Irene is like completely shocked and and upset by how her friend is living her life. But there's something enormously seductive about it as well that Irene cannot help being filled with enormous amounts of envy for. So that's the relationship that we see play out through the film and where we explore these notions of 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 race and and how these different women have found different ways to survive in a world where they they can't exist on their own terms. Hmm. Does it get a theatrical release because uh, f- to be nominated it needs to be in cinemas, albeit briefly, or do I just make I, that up? I would, imagine, I would imagine that that has been the route that they've gone. Um, I honestly, I really hope it's going to be up for awards. I particularly hope that Tessa Thompson is going to be up for awards because she is phenomenal in this. The The, the role of Irene is so nuanced and in a lot of ways she has to show a lot without without betraying it because she's you know she's a very straight-laced woman who's who's putting forth a very respectable image to society but at the same time she's roiling with all these different emotions within herself and the things that Claire inspires within her all these fears and these neuroses and these jealousies and you know, Tessa Thompson has always been a fantastic actor. I think anytime she's in something, she massively elevates it. But this is kind of one of the first films that really centralizes her as as a main, you know, impetus and force within a film. And she just knocks it out of the park. She's she's utterly, utterly incredible. And so, yeah, I'll be very furious if there's not some kind of Oscar campaign That's done it. up behind mm. her, um, I, I really hope the distributor is going to pour a lot of money into that. And any, so. any brief word on the soundtrack, if there is one? Oh, yeah. So there's a lot of lovely tinkling piano tunes, jazz tracks, as you would assume for a film that is mainly set in Harlem in the 1920s. And the music itself does does do a lot of character building and scene setting and everything. Like Everything in this film is just really wonderfully calibrated. It's enormously nuanced, as you would expect, from, from the topic that it is dealing with. It is just... Yeah, it, it's an extraordinary film, and I really, really would strongly encourage listeners to seek it out. All right. It's Rebecca Hall's Passing, adapted from Nella Larson's novella. Uh, Hayley Inch, fantastic. Thank you. Oh, always a pleasure. Triple R. When my dad recently bought his um, apartment, they gave him a bottle of champagne, and my dad, he just, he, he's not a drinker, hasn't drank since I've ever known. Um, but he was insistent that he wanted to have a sip. Like when he got into the apartment, he wanted to sit down and have a sip of the champagne. So I was with him and I was like, okay, you sure you want this? I was like, you don't have to have it if you don't want to. He's like, no, I'm ready. And like I said, this is the first time I think I've seen my dad have a drink, right? Mm. Uh, And he had a sip 
and it was he thought it was the most disgusting thing he'd ever had. He didn't enjoy or savour the moment and he gave me the rest of the glass and he said, take that and get it out of my face. <laughs> was it cold? <laughs> it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he just, he just I mean... He doesn't like alcohol, let alone champagne. But was he it just, good champagne? What kind of champagne yeah, was it? I'm just, I think it was actually, a, uh, I think it was a bottle of Chandon, uh, which was okay. Um, anyway, so he he just didn't want it, but he just he was so adamant, and I knew that this was going to happen. I was like, Dad, like, do, do you do you want to open it? Maybe I'll just take it home and I'll have it another time with some friends. Yeah. But he was like, No, 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 he wanted it. Um, but he didn't enjoy it as well, um, and it just made me think of different times when you have champagne. For occasions, I actually I don't know many people that drink champagne unless it is an occasion or a wedding or an event or anything. I think um, Churchill was mad for champagne. Who was? Winston Churchill. I thought that I really? thought he said Churchill, and I was like, no, there's no way he's just said Churchill was <laughs> mad for champagne. Like, <laughs> like, and the occasion would be I'm awake. <laughs> oh, let's, really? let's do this. Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, I remember playing. Um, sport and, and I was in this grand final for, with my cricket team and it was, uh, I don't know, innings break or something like that and uh, the president of the club, she's, I, I needed the power rate or something, she's like, yeah, get him in the esky. I was like, no worries. So I ran over and I opened the esky and I saw bottles of champagne and it's just like a, I don't know if it's superstitious or what, but you don't buy champagne before the end of the grand final. I mean, but you're, it's, you're supposed to have it straight after you win, but it's just like a, I don't know, like a... It's it's not good, and I just saw them, and I went, oh no! And she's like, oh, you weren't supposed to see that. I was like, you got it before the end of the game, and she's just like, don't tell anyone. I'm like, well, anyway, we lost the game, so I believe it was her fault for buying the champagne. Um, but generally, and so like when we played in the future, because of course I spoke about it later on um, at the club rooms. I'm like, well, you know, Lisa brought champagne last night, and it was like, oh, that's why we lost the game. Um, of course it wasn't, but it's just. You're supposed to buy the champagne as you're winning, or like a couple of overs before someone run down to the bottle shop, grab the champagne, mm. and then it just makes it more of a moment kind of a thing. It's not as convenient, but that was just, I guess, how we were reacting. But um, God, I would have felt jinx too. Yeah, totally. Right? Because also, how can't champagne become sad so fast? Oh yes. So it's oh, the celebration absolutely. drink. But tell me, like peak sadness isn't when they cut to that empty party room that's oh, lost election on election night, and there's these little sad bubbly cups in everyone's hand, oh, and God. it's just it's like represent it's just fizzing out. Your hopes and dreams are fizzing <laughs> yeah. out. And then you got the catering people wandering around offering food oh, no one wants. Top, top up, yeah. Top up. No. This loser night. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> when was the last time either of you had champagne? Doesn't take much for me. I like it. <laughs> you uh, do? I, I'd celebrate things when they uh, don't go terribly wrong. Like for instance, uh, like when life's just not shit. Have a yeah, champagne. Yeah. Like if you've avoided the calamity. Oh, you should oh. be a marketing guy for the champagne, oh. like bringing it down from sold your house. Yeah. You don't have to sell a house. You just need things uh, you, to not be a disaster. You know, you, you fell over but weren't concussed. Have a champagne. <laughs> <laughs> Bob a cork. Oh, my God. There's also the people uh, take off the lid of champagne, people trying to get fancy and cute with it. You seen this? Yeah. yeah, like the cutting. Cutting. I don't get the cutting. What are you cutting? I don't know. I've seen people do that. You cut, it's a, where, doesn't a bit of cork fall in? Is there still cork? Yeah. Plausibly, the cork will fall in. Yeah. I've seen people smash 
the glass. Yeah, well, that's what is, is that what they do when they cut? Or are you supposed to be able to do it well, without not, smashing the glass? Yeah, yeah, it's supposed to, yeah. You'll just slice through all the accoutrements or whatever uh-huh. and then the little pop. But sometimes they might get it wrong and, you know, you get a broken, oh. you know, bottle with a shard in someone's neck. Drinking this stuff. <laughs> sorry, sorry. So who was drinking this stuff? It sounds dangerous and terrible. Oh, I think the, the last time I had it was after Radiothon. Oh yeah, we we, we celebrated. Yeah, I'm not in into that. I don't like the um. Sorry. Well, I no, that's like, right. no, Well, I feel bad because we, everyone that was drinking champagne after Radiothon, but after those moments, I just feel like champagne makes you feel. It kind of knocks you out. I think I need. I don't know. Anyway, I'm saying I'm really angry about when you guys had champagne after radio, <laughs> and you didn't. And I didn't. Like, have, no, I'm not have any. <laughs> yeah, because that's basically all. I mean, I brought champagne to a when we were doing radiothon from our homes. I know. It makes you. It just carries a. He's got a little freezer bag. Those, <laughs> those fridge bags from the nineties, and he just keeps a bottle in it at all times. Here's something that's sad. I reckon. What yeah, about a ti- the tiny bottle, like an airplane oh. bottle of champagne? Yeah. Hey, do you want to hear it? Like the last time I had one of those was when I was got my period when I was 12 and my mum <laughs> wanted to celebrate. How Even embarrassing. 12. Yeah. And she goes, bought this little bottle, and a little <laughs> bottle of champagne. And I went, oh, this is so bad. And then dad came out and went, mum told me you became a woman today. Triple. <laughs> ah. Oh. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website. <laughs>